Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. If you're new to the show, my name is Jay. I'm an investor. I'm here looking for the smartest home for my cash. If that sounds like you, then I think you're going to like what we do here. My guest today is Chris Vermeulen, the founder and chief market strategist at The Technical Traders. Now, Chris believes the market's at a bit of a tipping point. It could surprise us bears and take off for another growth stock-fueled rally, or it could surprise the bulls and enter the next era of market activity, which would likely be a departure from growth stocks and an entry to value stocks and yield. But Chris is withholding judgment thus far. He says it's too early to tell which direction this market could go. So I said, okay, what does your portfolio look like then? How are you positioned when you don't know what might happen next? Fascinating conversation as always. Now, if you would like to begin investing in the commodity sector, if you're trying to build a portfolio as a commodity investor, then check out thecommodityuniversity.com and join thousands of investors just like you who are building their competitive advantage as commodity investors. This is a 10-chapter course that we launched about a month ago, and feedback has been incredible. I'm very excited about this product. So check out thecommodityuniversity.com if you want to gain your competitive advantage in the commodity supercycle. But first, here is Chris Vermeulen. Enjoy. Okay, here I am with Chris from Yulin. Chris, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for making the time. Hey, thanks for having me, Jay. Always a pleasure. Okay, so let's start high level, Chris. What macro trends are you most focused on right now? And specifically, if there's anything that you think mainstream media or the public are misunderstanding? Yeah, I would say kind of the 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 macro outlook, or you know, if we, we look at sentiment of the general masses of investors, I feel like everybody has. While this year was a really strong start to the year and everyone was really bullish and people were piling back into tech and growth stocks, I feel like in the last month and a half or so, people have really shifted gear and um, the the mass sentiment, people are kind of like kind of just that hold mode. They're kind of waiting to see what's going to happen. I mean, a lot of people, they made it through the 2022, you know, bear market. They're like, oh, I survived. You know, a couple of months ago, everybody was super bullish and uh, I know advisors across the board and general investors were thinking, hey, 2022 was the bear market. They're in their heads. The average investor outside of this space, obviously we live and breathe it, but the average investor I think is thinking that we're going to start another major bull market that's going to last five or 10 years. You know, we just had that correction. So mentally they're, they're just thinking this is a pause. And I mean, there's a lot of there's different stages to the market. And I believe we're in this kind of complacency stage for a lot of people. Not they think there's good times ahead, but it might be slow for a while. But the reality is, I think this market is really on the verge of rolling over. And I don't think that people understand the potential impacts that are around the corner if things turn to the downside. And, you know, I, I know a more aggressive and active investors, they're definitely in that kind of hold mode kind of debating is this market going to break down? Do I need to take some serious action to avoid a collapse or profit from it? Or are we going to start into a new bull market? So, I mean, the active investor kind of like, uh, you know, our kind of bubble that we're in, I think a lot of people are just treading very lightly here because uh, the shoe could drop at any point. But the average investor, I think, I don't think they realize what could be around the corner and how devastating it could be and how long this could last. I I think this is coming into like a tech bubble style burst where it could be a very weak market for two or three years. 
It could take 10 or plus years to fully recover from what's going on. Everybody just had this euphoric phase where everybody was making a ton of money. Everybody became the wealthiest they've ever been because everything you own doubled or tripled in value. And when you, you usually go from one extreme to the other, everybody feels like a million bucks. And then suddenly you hit rock bottom and you're like, how did that change so fast? So that's the big swing that I think is coming. And I think people need to be mentally prepared, financially prepared. Uh, there's going to be asset classes that are going to perform exceptionally well. Most of them are not. So it's it's definitely going to become more of a, an active investor or a trader's market potentially for quite it's quite some time. You know, that it makes sense why most, and I agree with you, so many friends of mine who don't live and breathe this as you and I do, can't wrap their mind around that concept that maybe this market might roll over for a significant number of years. Mm -hmm. Recency bias is really, really powerful. And it's not just recency bias when we're talking about the last 12 years of what, you know, you can expect the market to do. That's, that's a very long time. I mean, yeah. and so to, to, to now believe the chicken little pundits who are saying, but this crash is real, right? Because how many times have you heard this? That's the other side of that, right? Is that, yeah. I mean, the doom and gloom pundits, the market crash pundits, they've been here the whole time. They were here the last 12 years when the market was rallying. So now it's different. I mean, I get that mindset, right? So my question <laughs> for you, therefore, is like, I mean, you kind of laid out two possibilities. One is that we get through this with a sort of recovery and then set up the next five or 10 year bull market. I don't think you land in that camp, but tell me if I got that wrong. The second would be that the market does roll over and we're into, you know, a few years of, um, uh, you know, a new market paradigm, right? We'll have to look for value yeah. in places that we haven't recently. So which of those two camps do you land in? And then what's your evidence that we're headed that direction? Yeah. So I should state one thing because, you know, I, I always I always get try and give out both sides of the picture. And then some people always get confused. They hear it. They're like, well, he says it could go either way. Right. Uh, so I'm I'm not a doomer and gloomer. But to me, the technicals and everything coming around puts me in the camp that I think we're in for very rough times. Some people are saying we're going into a recession. Others are saying we're going into a full on depression. Uh, I as much as I don't want to think of either of those, I have a feeling that's going to happen. Uh, which we can we can touch on, but um, uh, you know, I, I I personally just think these markets are getting very weak. We're seeing you know interest rates are you know we've gone forty years down. Now we've turned a major corner. Interest rates are going up. They might stay up for a while, and uh, typically after rates go up, especially this this is like the fastest rates I think have ever climbed. Um, we always see a recession kick in. And um, it's going to be a big reset across the board for a lot of asset classes, especially here in Canada. When you look at the real estate market, I mean, in can in the states, you can lock in a mortgage for like thirty years or rate, but here in Canada, I mean, it's like a three or five year are the two most popular. And a perfect example is I uh, was talking to a mechanic, uh, is getting my truck fixed, and he's driving me home. We're having small talk. He's like, "Hey, do you need to buy a property?" He says, "I'm selling," <laughs> and I'm like, "Not really," but he told me his whole story. And it, here we are, three years right after COVID. His three-year mortgage comes up uh, for renewal in April. He goes from one point nine percent. He's going to be renewing at like six percent. He says, "I don't even make enough on a monthly basis to pay triple my mortgage." He says, "I'm not going to get approved. I have to sell it." And this is like the tip of the iceberg of one asset class that is going to probably, at least in Canada, get absolutely annihilated. Uh, you know, next year is when those mortgages kick in. As soon as we start to see, you know, um, 
unemployment start to spike up and, and things slow down, banks are going to stiffen up even more. So there, there's a lot of really difficult times, I think, in the real estate space coming around. And that's what's probably going to hurt people more. The average investor first, they're going to realize uh, when their mortgage rates jump up, they're going to start to see a lot of pressure just there on their bank accounts. Yeah, well, I think something like 70% of new mortgages inside of the year 2022 in Canada, anyways, were variable rate. And so, you know, that trend will take a few years to wash out. But that's that's a super visceral story. You're um, you know, and 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 you know, yes, we've been raising rates at a pace we haven't seen in sort of 40 years, you know, that that's for sure. Uh, we also make the mistake of assuming that when we make adjustments like that to fiscal policy, that the impact will be felt immediately. And if we don't feel that impact immediately, then maybe we won't feel it. Right. And just right. this morning I was like, and it takes like, yeah, quarters for this stuff to wash out and trickle down because, you know, uh, the process is this cost will be passed from, you know, the fed funds rate or, you know, or equivalent over to the, the banks, the, the mortgage holders, and then eventually the, you know, they got to renew, but it, it takes quarters for this process to wash out in the various directions. And just this morning, I was listening to some commentary from a journalist that I really respect, but they were going off about how, uh, you know, the UAW strikes in the US, right? The, the auto worker strikes and saying, you know, everybody thought because they've somewhat been resolved now as of today, it's October 31st. Everybody was saying that if the auto companies have to concede in such a way that auto prices are going to skyrocket, you know, beyond what people can afford, right? And right. look, the auto companies conceded and that didn't happen. And it's like, well, hold on a minute. They've been resolved for like a week. Like when yeah. these changes were going to take effect, like this stuff takes time. You're, you're jumping to the conclusion and calling the game. And it's like the yeah. second inning here, right? So yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole real estate and interest rate stuff and, and stuff like that. I mean, to me, it, it, in a lot of cases, it takes almost kind of years to play out because not only do prices start to increase like for mortgages and 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 just buying like inflation stuff that we need every day the thing is yes it goes up and it, we might feel it right away but it doesn't really start to affect until everybody's bank account is finally drained i mean 70% of canada lives paycheck to paycheck i think it's similar in the states and once people run out of money and their costs keep going up especially when the mortgages hit that's going to be thousands of dollars more a month uh, that you know, it's it takes several years. Like after the uh, the 2008 financial crisis, real estate kept staying weak until 2011, 2012. So it's it's a slow burn, and it and it eventually just you know burns through everyone's capital, their savings, and then finally like it kind of hits rock bottom. And so we're yeah we're definitely going to be in that interesting time. The one point I was trying to I, I didn't quite finish making there was the other was about how I always talk about there's two scenarios, and the one thing that I, I kind of definitely stands me apart from a lot of other people who are in this space is I am 100% a technical analyst. So I don't follow the feds. I don't follow the news. I don't really go on predictions. I'm, I'm strictly price oriented. So I don't really care which way the markets go. We just need to be prepared for either one. And when a new trend has started, a new major trend, we want to make sure we take part of it going forward. And that's a nice thing about following price charts, following momentum and trends is we can identify these huge waves in the market and then take advantage of them. So while I'm expecting a, a big market correction that could last several years, if the market breaks out and rallies, it really makes no difference. We'll just kick back into a long position and take advantage of whatever assets are performing the best at the, any given time. Yeah, that's good clarity. Thank, thank you for that, Chris. 
given that, are you seeing any evidence of a trend this way or that way, or is it too soon to call from your perspective? It's it's still a little too soon to call. To me, if you were to look at the overall U.S. equities market, it it looks and feels like the momentum is stalling out. There might be another little holiday rally going into the end of the year. Maybe we can push up to see the SP 500 or NASDAQ, maybe hit a double top from the 2022 highs. But when you look at the strength of the market, most sectors are trending down, both short-term and long-term. There's not a lot of power behind this. It's really just a kind of a tech-driven, AI has really saved the year uh, in terms of semiconductors, technology, kind of really muscling the markets higher. You look at the small cap stocks like the Russell 2000, they are starting to break down from a huge sideways range. Small caps, they're known as growth stocks, uh, aggressive stocks. They are breaking down. They tend to lead the market. So it's not a good sign. The ARC ETF has gone through the full four stage cycle. It is getting close to breaking down. I mean, it could still fall. I, I talked about it the other day. The ARC ETF could fall about another 55% from where it is, down around $16 a share. It's going to catch a ton of people off guard if this market uh, breaks down. So you know, the really the markets are completely masked by the heavyweights doing a lot of the lifting and um, the average investor who who's aggressive and owns a lot of growth stocks. They are underperforming and down huge uh, this year, even though we've had a good rally. Unless you're an index trader, you're definitely down because most individual stocks are hit very hard other than a handful of the big techs. So let's yeah, I want to sit with the handful of the big techs because you're right. And as far as I understand Right now, the S&P is consolidated to an extent that we've probably never seen before. About 24% of the entire value is held by five companies. What does that tell you, Chris? When Because I, I interpret that as like, it's kind of a one falls and they all fall scenario. Because you know if one of these companies begins to sell off a little bit, the liquidity squeeze is going to spread and become systemic, I would yeah. assume pretty quick. But what do you think? And what does that story tell you? Yeah, depending on how you want to look at it, I, I I think you know the financial markets to some to some extent, depending how far you want to go, are are pretty rigged. The fact that they allow you know an index to hold that much weighting, like a stock, individual stocks, a couple of them, doesn't really give you a very good view and feel of the market. And a lot of people look at the indexes for what the average average market is doing. But if you kind of put everything together at all the stocks, you realize it's not a very strong market. Stock and bond portfolio is is down about twenty percent from the highs. Still, um, you know, the, the, you got to play the tech. I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in technology, but when they start to sell off, when those big brand names start to go down, you know, fear is the strongest thing, and that's that's the one of the biggest things. You look at the market when fear hits something, stocks fall four to seven times faster then they rise. So in a year, we can wipe out years worth of gains. In a week, we can wipe out months of gains. And so that's the big concern. There's not a lot of liquidity in this market. As soon as people turn and get nervous, um, we're going to see, you know, I think a very big waterfall type sell-off and it's just going to bleed over into everything. And it really, almost everything is already selling off is the, the big techs are holding it up. You look at the clean energy ETFs, they're already down something like 80 plus percent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just beaten up. They were the darlings a few years ago, like PBW, which is like the clean energy is up like 350% after COVID. Now it's down 85, probably by the time this is all said and done a year or two from now, it's going to be down like 90, 95%, just like the tech bubble. 
takes 500% to recover, which could take a long time to make, <laughs> make that back. So uh, yeah, it's, it's scary that everything's heavy weighted around a, a few big companies. They really do cold, hold the majority of the world's money in their hands. Yeah, you're right on that. That whole ESG bucket is getting hammered right now, you know, in a variety of ways, like, and one just being sentiment, you know, investors trust in the ESG promises of these companies or like the greenwashing narratives has absolutely plummeted, um, which is not a bad thing. People may hear that and interpret this as investors don't care about the environment anymore. I, I don't see it that way at all. I see that people are becoming pragmatic about what's actually possible now, which is a better way to think about this, right? There's been a lot of like, you know, pure fiction promises made uh, by both governments and corporations about their green initiatives, setting targets and milestones that there's no way they'll accomplish about, you know, carbon neutral futures by 2030, 2035, all this stuff. Sounds great on paper, but like, what's the game plan, right? That's the hard part. And maybe the important yeah. part of it. Now we're coming to terms with, and it's like, there's a lot of holes in this game plan. Maybe it's not possible like we thought it was or how we promised it was. What's your take on that, Chris? And do you see a shift in investor sentiment, therefore, um, towards, uh, I would say, like real assets, like raw materials, you know, cash flowing companies, yield, things that have mm -hmm. proven value and, and intrinsic value? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think people are still very green oriented. They want the best. They, they want the world to be better and they want to go green, but it's, uh, you know, it's just not getting the full on traction. A lot of those promises aren't coming through. It takes a lot of changing an infrastructure to embed a lot of that stuff. Um, I, I find it's pretty interesting. I mean, it went from the darlings to, to now it's getting beat up. It's going to make for some great opportunities when the they finally find the right solution. We are in the right market environment. I think it's going to be a fantastic sector to be in at some point. But yeah, I think we're starting to see a shift. I mean, uh, I was talking to someone a while ago and they're like, because I asked them about uranium because uranium stocks are coming back. And I mean, it was out of favor forever. Nobody wanted uranium nuclear plants. It has gone full bear market cycles, you know, decade out of favor. It is coming back to life. And uh, he was talking about how there's these small nuclear plants that you could literally put one in each state type of thing, and it can power an entire state. And it's very controlled. It's very safe. It's not some massive facility that'll destroy half half of a, a country or, or an area if something happens and how how efficient it really is and how that could actually become one of the next major power sources. And I think that's we're starting to see that potentially bubble through into the uranium sector. URA is an ETF that kind of follows that. It's built a beautiful basing formation, a cup and handle. We just need for the right environment, I think, for physical commodity-based plays to come back. I think there's still going to be a little bit of weakness in the commodity space across the board, uranium, gold, silver, miners, uh, oil, because I do think we're going to go into a bit of a recession, hopefully just a bit. Um, we're going to see probably a bear market, which I always like to look at the stock market like the ocean. It's when the tide goes up, the boats go up. When the tide goes down, most boats go down with it. The stock market is pretty much the same. And even though gold was in a raging bull market and, and holding up near the highs back in 2007, when a bear market hits, there's forced liquidation, there's just fear, and it creates some selling pressure. So I think we're still going to have a wave of fear and selling pressure that's going to pull commodities like gold, silver, uh, miners, uranium back a bit. But as soon, they're going to probably going to be the first to rally physical commodities. People love to go from equities to physical, and we could see them just skyrocket. The opportunity for, I think, the precious metals and uranium space, 
are going to be like what we saw right after the 2008 crisis, right after the uh, the tech bubble back in 2001, 2002. So we are we are getting closer, quarter by quarter. I don't think it's happening just yet, but we're talking like you know if you've caught one of those, which I'm pretty sure you have, it's a life-changing experience when you catch these stocks or these sectors that literally rally hundreds or thousands of percent uh, for several years. And um, so I'm really excited for what's coming out of this. It's just going to be a rough ride if you're not mentally prepared for uh, difficult times or kind of a recession, people with a lot of negative attitude. You need to preserve your capital so you can move into these spaces, you know, and take full advantage of it when, uh, when the time comes, that's going to be the key. So let's talk about mental preparedness then, because I feel mentally prepared when I've taken the tactical steps um, I feel are necessary. And, you know, there's always two things at play in the investor mindset. One is FOMO. One is if I don't have a horse in the uranium race, for example, I'm going to miss out on that life-changing wealth creation event, right? And what's next, you know, is it the copper stocks? Is it silver stocks? I don't know, but I don't want to miss out. But you got to couple that with, I absolutely agree with you, you know, during those, uh, you know, capitulation events, everything that's not bolted to the floor gets sold because people need liquidity at any yep. price, you know, and, and they'll yep. take it. So everything gets sold off, physical gold, y- you name it, you know. And so being prepared for that means having access to an abundance of liquidity and not being overexposed to equities, et cetera. So, you know, how are you structured right now, Chris? And and yeah, talking about that, what's your what's your portfolio bucket look like at present? Yeah, well, we we I, I run a very very clean ship, so I, I use a strategy that I call asset revesting. We only we only invest our capital in one asset class at a time for our for our kind of stock trading type portfolio. And I consider a stock doesn't matter what sector it is in uh, is that's that's one asset class. The stock market is one asset. Real estate is another. Uh, bonds are another, precious metals are another. So there's all these different assets, right? So we have moved out of the equities market. We are literally sitting in in cash in in an ETF called Bill, B-I-L, and we just collect daily interest and we're waiting for another opportunity in this market. And I I mean, I'm a surfer, I'm a kiteboarder. So I like to look at the markets like we're one of one, one of those surfers floating out on the, on the horizon past the break. And we are literally just waiting patiently with our money nice and safe for a set of waves to come in. And when there is a sector or an asset class that has money rolling through it and we can see the power, those waves stand out. You can see them coming a mile away and we can jump on those, play those trends. And the nice thing about a strong wave is you can also tell when it's losing momentum. You know when to carve off of a wave because it's about to curl and crash. Uh, so that is what we do is we float out there, we wait safely, and then we'll move into an asset class and we'll we'll play that move. And then we'll move back to cash or it's something different. And so we are waiting in cash uh, right now, just collecting interest, finding out, are we getting a holiday Christmas rally or are we breaking down? Do we need to jump into something else that's going up like the US dollar index? Uh, when there's chaos in the markets, the dollar index is an awesome place to park money. Typically, we see the dollar rally. It's a very slow-moving uh, asset. So even though the markets could be having wild whip- whipsaw actions, we can go in this really slow-moving kind of snail of a of a trade, and the dollar will just keep going up. 2022 was the year for the dollar. We played it quite a bit. Every time the stock market sold off, we'd move to the dollar ETF. 
And uh, that's that's what we're waiting for is do we get into the dollar? Do we take an inverse ETF play for falling stocks or do we get long for a Christmas rally? And we are right in limbo as we speak right now, the market trying to figure out what the heck it wants to do. Okay, I have to ask for clarity on on one thing that you mentioned in your previous answer. You were talking about the uranium sector and it's rallying right now. It's looking quite strong. This could continue. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it probably has legs. I think with most of these rallies, you know, they get overbought though, and then they they pull back and investors yeah. lose confidence. It's over and then it runs again because there's two trends of play. There's like the the long term supply and demand trend, and then there's yeah. the trading cycle, right? Where traders get in there and you know overbuy yeah. and oversell all this stuff, but Understanding your time horizon helps insulate you from that short-term volatility. If you know I'm I'm in this position for you know three years, five years, one year, whatever right. your time horizon is, it helps me police the short-term volatility that may not apply to me. But you also mentioned you felt like gold and silver stocks were possibly teed up for a strong rally as well. And I gotta ask you, what's your evidence of that, Chris? What are you seeing that gives you confidence that that market could be positioned well for the next few years, if you think it is, and not putting words in your mouth, but. Yeah, well, the the chart, if you look at the, like, for example, the monthly chart of, well, all of them have a very similar chart. Gold is the strongest because gold to me is, it's the global safe haven play. You know, most people move to gold because it's the first, first physical asset that typically comes to their mind. That's kind of like an alternative asset. And what's nice about gold and why I think a lot of people go to it is because it moves slowly. A big day in gold is like a percent, percent and a half. Those are pretty rare. Uh, So the slower something moves, typically the more money you can dump into it without panicking. Uh, Stock market's very volatile, oil or natural gas, right? Those things can get uh, pretty extreme. So gold is holding up near all-time highs. The monthly chart shows a massive cup and handle pattern that points to the next stop, if it breaks out of here, is going about 2,700. And um, maybe we're going to see a rally up to 2,700 before it go. We we see a stock market correction. I'm not sure. I mean, that's that's the nice thing about the technicals. We just have to wait for a breakout and see this pattern start to confirm uh, above you know the the highs here. But uh, people are holding their money in gold. Gold is holding up near the highs. One of the things is if you actually look at gold and oil, they tend to do very well one or two, like within the last kind of two years of a stock market, uh, bull market coming to an end. They're the last two commodities. We saw in 2007, we saw a massive blow off in crude oil, and then it pulled back to a consolidation phase. Uh, the charts show it really, really well. Um, and then we went into the the financial crisis and in, in oil tanked even further. Well, we had the 2022 bubble in, in oil. It's now pulled back. It's consolidated, very similar to the 2007-2008 pattern. Gold is doing the same. It's trading up near the highs. It's holding its value. Those are two early warning signs that the stock market is coming to a, a financial reset. People are moving to these physical metals or physical commodities. Um uh, so I am I am still bearish on them. I do think we're going to see a recession hit and everything pull back a little bit. Um, it would be nice if gold would break out. Uh, I, I don't think it's going to break out. I actually think we're, we're going to get hit with selling and it's going to pull back. I know it's getting exciting because it's right back up at those highs, but we've seen gold hit these levels up in that you know, 20, 2080 level several times. And then it's sold back down. And I feel like I I feel the same vibe in the market. People are getting excited. They want it to break out, but we're not seeing commitment in the space. If you look at the enter or the um gold and silver miners stocks, 
they're down like 50% from the highs. They should be like way up there threatening to break out to new highs. And there's just not any big money moving into those leverage plays. Typically, we'll see money moving into those leverage plays uh, before the physical commodity usually breaks is what I've found. So the fact that they're underperforming and lagging is just telling me big money isn't really piling in there yet, uh, which I think is going to make for an even better opportunity down the road. Because to me, they're they're pretty undervalued. I think there's a lot of potential for those gold miners just to get back to the highs from 2011. And of course, they can go way beyond that. At that point, I think gold could be at 2,700, 3,500. I mean, we're probably going into like a five-year rally for for gold and precious metal space, um, but uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of my take on it. So two questions spun out of that. Then the first is this. So, you know, I I'm quite invested in the gold sector for for two reasons. You know, the student of history owns physical gold, that, yep. and then the capitalist in me owns the gold miners and the developers because I I know about the torque that can occur there. Yep. A lot of individuals who are exposed to the gold sector are kind of like the Bitcoin maximalists. They end up sort of cheering on the asset class, you know, laser eyes and gold bugs. All yeah. stuff. You know, it, it irks me when people treat an asset class like a sports team and start cheering it on. But anyways, <laughs> you know, one thing I wonder if people think about is what what would the world have to look like for gold to be priced at, you know, four thousand, five thousand dollars? And is that a world that you really want to live in? I mean, Maybe we're heading there, and and that's neither here nor there. I'm I'm not saying what I, I want to happen, but you know, is there a possibility? And what would be the trigger point for gold to hit you know that that kind of price? Thirty five hundred is what you said. You know, what what does the world look like in that scenario, Chris? Is that could that occur just as a symptom of central banks looking for optionality and a bit of stability themselves? institutions wanted to increase their allocation and that demand and retail investors the same. And that demand is enough to push the price up to, you know, what isn't a crazy rally, but $3,500 gold is, 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 you know, decent, very healthy rise. Or do we have to be in some kind of very terrifying conflict or serious inflationary events, et cetera, et cetera, for that to occur? What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, that brings up a couple of good points. Uh, so I'm the same. I'm very, very heavy in precious metals. I, I like physical. I hold physical until we get into a, a, the new raging bull market. Then I'm going to be moving into the miners because, as you said, there's so much torque and leverage in those things. Um, so I love the precious metal space. I would love it to go up. Um, but to me, the reality is I think it's still, it still has some more quarters to mature and, and, and wait to go. Um, and you, the second part you brought up there is is a really good point. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about thirty five hundred, five thousand, twenty five thousand dollar gold, and they're like cheering for it. And uh, to be honest, like we don't, I don't think we want that. I mean, thirty five hundred dollar gold, I could see that being the world and financial advising advisors in the financial system reallocating gold to everyone's portfolio, trying to give them that one, three, five percent, which is right now it's like way undervalued. Like I think the average portfolio might have like a fraction of a percent, <laughs> if any. So I think if just the financial system started to pull gold into it, I think we could probably safely go to 3,500 for gold. But I mean, 5,000 or a 10,000 or $25,000 gold, I mean, we might not really, you might want to be living on your own island away from people. It could be like wars and, and people stealing and like, I mean, a da dangerous time, right? A high gold prices. I'm not betting my money on on high gold prices. I don't really want gold prices to go crazy high because it means we're going to be in really difficult times. 
you know, it, it might not be too bad if the currencies collapse uh, and that does most of the heavy lifting. But I mean, it's yeah. I mean, high gold prices means usually higher issues. <laughs> so yeah. it's yeah. kind of scary. Okay. So, so next question is fun with that is the concept of demand destruction in response to a recession or even a depressionary event. And I'm trying to understand this myself, Chris, so maybe you can help me because I look at like oil consumption, uh, oil demand, for example. And if you look at a 15 year chart of oil demand and you pick out the years where maybe you would assume demand would plummet, like uh, 2008 great financial crisis, right? The great financial crisis of, of my lifetime, mm-hmm. global oil demand fell by slightly over 1% during the year 2008 and then bounced right back in 2009. And when you step back and look at the 10-year chart, you don't even notice it, right? It just, it's up and to yeah. the right. Uh, 2020, when we locked everybody in their houses, landed airplanes, shuttered hotels, cruise ships parked, you know, really paused the economy. You might've assumed yeah. that oil demand fell by like 40% because everything, it fell by 8%. Again, that one year and then 2021 back on track. Uh, you do yeah. notice that in the 10-year chart because 8% is is a lot, but not as much as maybe I would have assumed. 25%, I would have believed that, you know, would have made sense. Yeah. To me. Uh, but so when I look at that, and that's one chart, one commodity, I understand that. It makes me question the demand destruction argument, which I also believe, like I'm not as exposed to some commodities that I feel like are great buys like copper because of exactly what you've discussed thus far, that in a recession, everything gets sold, economic activity slows down. So how do you grapple with those two concepts and et cetera? Yeah. I mean, I I really try to just focus on, um, I really just try and focus on the charts. I mean, I try not to go into supply, demand and OPEC and all that stuff because you know so many people try and trade around news and the fed i'm like well first of all you never know when the food the news is coming out you never know what the news is and then you don't know how people are going to react you don't know how algos are going to react um and everything changes the fed can say the same thing twice and the market reacts completely different uh so i really try to like i get rid of the negativity i mean i'm over 10 years i haven't watched the news i don't i don't watch tv i don't listen to the news uh, I hate negative stuff in general. I just like to be happy, which is why I'm not a doom and gloomer, you know, because it really gets me depressed. I, I don't want to think of talk difficult times, but I believe we're coming into something that is so important. Uh, I've been through a bankruptcy when I was younger. My parents went through bankruptcy. I've seen how it can, I, my, my dad almost lost his life from the stress and things that came with it. And uh, in 2008, 2009, there was over 6,500 suicides directly linked to falling equity prices in a one-year window. So what is coming around the corner? And everybody's just had like the, not everybody, but a lot of people just had their most wealth they've ever had. They've had a great couple of years other than the whole COVID kerfuffle. Financially, people have been doing very well. And now we're going to have this potential reset that could not only destroy your financial future, your retirement, but it is literally a deadly event that is happening financially. It is so severe what could happen. Uh, it it can do a lot of damage to families and stuff. And so that is like why I want to try and tell everybody, like, listen, what is coming around the corner? You're way better to miss out on some gains and be defensive and protective right now than you are to like ride this out and go through what could take way longer than we ever imagined. Nobody thought the tech bubble was going to take 12 years for the SP 500 to recover 16 years for the NASDAQ. We can always make more money. 
but you can't get time back. Every day that ticks by, it is gone and we're closer to, you know, being eaten by worms. <laughs> so, I mean, we can't just hold on and ride out bear markets. We're way better to just step aside, find a way to take advantage of these trends uh, and, and try to attack the markets from, from, from that angle and that perspective. Yeah, I, I appreciate that approach because you do a good job, Chris, at cutting out what you qualify as noise and getting to the signal that's worked well for you through your career. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to I want to chat about the book behind you, Asset Revesting. So uh, relatively new release. So what's what's in the book? What's it about, Chris? Yeah, so more or less. It, it's uh, I coined the term asset revesting because um, what the, how I attack the markets is, I think, very different than the majority of people. You've got two camps. You've either got the buy and hold people, which is a very risky strategy if you're in your later years. Uh, you're guaranteed to have a roller coaster ride. You, you typically don't see somebody with the buy and hold strategy retire 20 or 30 years younger. It is a long term kind of low performance way to make money, uh, roller coaster ride the whole way. And then you got the active traders who are really aggressive. There's numerous studies across North America, Taiwan, Brazil, um, that state, if you're an active trader, you trade for 300 days or more, even during a bull market, uh, 97% of people lose money. And it's because emotions get in there and people have FOMO and they don't understand position sizing. They don't understand position management and they just throw random numbers and they're they're literally just flying by the seat of their pants and of highs and lows, very frustrating. And so I came out with the the strategy that I do. I call it asset revesting. It's kind of right in the middle. We have about five to 12 trades a year. We just move, we reinvest our capital into a different asset. Could be cash, could be the dollar, could be bonds, could be an inverse ETF. Um, And, you know, that amount of trades, the active trader is like, well, it's not enough trades. They'll never make money because they think they need to trade more. The passive investor goes, well, I do nothing every year. That seems like it's a really active strategy. So I do something that is a very uncomfortable time zone. I look for these sets of waves, just like a surfer that just roll through the markets every year. And that's what I catch. Not a lot of people are in this space. It is a very kind of slow. It's kind of like watching paint dry sometimes if you're an active trader, but it is really nice. I, you know, It's a consistent growth strategy because we're either in cash earning interest, or we're in an asset that's going up. And as soon as the, that asset shows signs of rolling over, we just move aside and we wait for another clean set of waves. We pick the asset that we like. I use, um, in the book, I explain an asset hierarchy. So at the top of our hierarchy is the most volatile asset, which the one I follow is the US stock market. And if the stock market is favorable, we want to be in it because it's the fastest moving. It's super liquid. We can trade it with ETFs and we want to catch those trends. If it's not favorable, then we'll actually look down to bonds. If they're not favorable, we'll go to the dollar index ETF. If that's not favorable, then we go to the dollar inverse ETF. So it doesn't matter if the dollar is rising or falling, we can still profit from this slow trending asset class. And if nothing meets our criteria, we sit in cash and we wait, just like what we're doing right now. Where's this market going to go? This next trend I think is going to be pretty big. I think it's going to last potentially a couple of months. We just need to figure out which way it's going, and then what asset that money's flowing into. And then we want to rotate our capital into that. So that's what the strategy is all about. It's about just cherry picking, waiting for momentum moves. And uh, I, I say momentum, but these are usually a month to two, three month long trades. And uh, and then we just play those, those asset classes. We don't hold anything if it's going sideways or down. We just 
safely step aside. Okay. I appreciate that. And if anybody wants to pick up a copy of asset revesting, they can get this at your website, thetechnicaltraders.com, correct? Yep. Okay. Awesome. Um, as well as your, your previous book as well. So Chris, look, I want to thank you for coming on the show and, and chatting with me. It's always fun catching up with you. I like your take, man. And, and, uh, <laughs> and it's uh, of high value to me and my audience. So I appreciate your time. Great. Well, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.